This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. some light reading in case I got bored. Welcome, everyone, to episode 264 of Literary Treks, your dedicated Star Trek books and comics show here on the Trek FM network. I'm one of your hosts, Dan Gunther, and joining me as he is every week is the wonderful Bruce Gibson. Bruce, how's it going this week? I'm having a wonderful week. Thank you very much. Um, It's the end of March as we record this. So I want to wish everybody who's listening right now a happy April. Excellent. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. It's finally the weather's turning around. It's the perfect season for new Star Trek books. Speaking of new books, Star Trek The Next Generation Available Light. We've got that coming out right away here. So that's really excellent. Looking forward to that. And uh, other than that, we don't really have much news to talk about this week or to be well, honest, any. I can tell you something that is coming out this week. As of today, this is the projected date. On Wednesday the 10th, we have Star Trek Year 5, number one of oh, that comic yeah. series coming out on the 10th of April, if that's still true as the time you're hearing this. That's excellent. And the day before that, 9th of April, is that TNG uh, available light novel. So big week for new Star Trek releases. Definitely looking forward to that. Yeah, and, you know, we'll talk about those here on an upcoming episode of Literary Tracks. Are we going to do that? Do we have that penciled in? I didn't even think to... Can we talk about those? I don't have a pencil. Uh, I have a pen, so I can pen that in. Oh, shoot. Well, if it's penned in, we have to do it, right? Yes, because you can't (laughs) erase that. Definitely. Well, as you can tell, we... Like we said, we don't have a lot of news, so we're just kind of spinning our wheels here. So what do you say we uh, jump into talking about some of your feedback from the Babel conference on episode 262? We almost had a spit take, and that episode was all about the Voyager Spirit Walk novel, book one, Old Wounds by Christy Gold. Yes. And so first comment is from Justin Ozer about the Q conflict number two comic that we reviewed at the beginning of the show. And he says, I really enjoyed the story, but I agree that the artwork was an issue. The faces were especially a problem in some places like this example. 
is that really supposed to be Beverly Crusher? And of course, he puts a screenshot in here where you can see Picard, Spock, which look, you know, pretty close to the actors. But yeah, Beverly's a little off on that one. I'll have to agree with that. And then he puts another one of Kirk, which really does not look like William Shatner. But if William Shatner saw this, he'd say, oh, that's the best representation of me I've ever seen. <laughs> it's it's definitely a dashing, heroic looking person. But yeah, Captain Kirk, maybe not quite so much. Um, he also had a, an, an issue, and I I had noticed this as well with the blacks of the uniforms that had little kind of gray flecks on them. And it kind of almost looked like they were uh, colored in with like marker, but not quite the whole thing or something because there's these little weird flecks on them. And he's got a picture here of Janeway from behind that shows kind of what, what yeah. he's talking about there. What's up with that? That is kind of weird. I was thinking of bringing that up when we were talking about the comic because I, I really didn't know what that was about. It was seemed an odd choice. Yeah, because there's other solid blacks that are solid black in mm -hmm. the panels but the uniforms are like they sparkly things or something yeah maybe it's her like formal you know evening out uniform <laughs> i i was not aware that starfleet uniforms now sported sequins but apparently they do <laughs> they do in this comic <laughs> well justin's got another uh comment here talking about the feature of the show uh, like I said, it was Old Wounds, Voyager Spirit Walk, book one by Christy Golden. Uh, and and if you remember that episode, we had, you know, mixed feelings about it. But for the most part, I think we were pretty critical of the book. We had some issues with it. Uh, Justin uh, had a different take on it, though. He says that he really enjoyed the novel. He especially liked a lot of the character interaction and development um, we, we felt that not much happened during the book, but the character development was something that he noticed and pointed out. And he also really liked seeing Chakotay struggle to adapt to his uh, new role as a starship commander. Um, he also really liked the character of Sakaya, thought that she was a great character. And Counselor Estal, another new character in this, was a fantastic character and one of his favorites. And... Um, Kaz, Dr. Kaz, he also points out as being a really great character in the novel, you know, and, and I don't have a, I don't have a lot of that, that I can disagree with. I did like the new characters. I think we talked a lot about Kaz and, uh, Sakaya being great characters. Um, but he definitely feels that, uh, some of our criticisms weren't things that he felt and felt that it was kind of a nine out of 10. He really enjoyed this novel. Uh, a couple issues that lined up with uh, the things that we had issues with those as well, the episode tattoo and some of the other stuff, how the female characters were described. But for the most part, definitely a favorite of Justin Ozer. Dang, yeah, he puts a nine out of ten. So that's that says a lot. So that's really cool that he likes it that much. I'm curious to see what he thinks about book two. And I'm sure we'll hear about that uh, in the comments section on the Babel conference when that episode uh when we cover that in our next episode. So Jen Foley, like Justin, also liked the book a lot more than y'all did. That's how she says it there. So anyway, because, you know, she's here in Georgia like I am. But uh, just to say some of the things that she mentioned is that uh, I think for her, she felt like because she knew this was book one, there would be a lot of things that aren't getting 
resolved in this book. So she was okay with those unresolved storylines. It didn't bother her as much. And she likes the uh, tattoo, the sky spirits episode. So that worked for her too. Also, um, she agreed with our comments about Sakaya. She doesn't know why she had to lie to Chakotay about what happened to uh, his planet with the Cardassians. And she put that off for so long. And then uh, she also didn't like the whole twin thing about Chakotay and Sakaya, where people are saying how much they looked alike. And uh, she says one is male and the other is female. So they can't be identical as the author was suggesting. They would could only be fraternal twins. Um, and not look identical to each other. So she said she had to keep rolling her eyes every time that kept coming up about how much they look identical. Yeah, and I, I definitely twigged, twigged on that a little bit in the novel as well. I kind of thought of it more as like they looked maybe really close in age. So that's why people were wondering if they were twins. But it 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 did strike me as a little odd for sure. Well, you know, now that I think about it, you know, there was this girl I used to date, uh, and she had an older sister who was like maybe two years older than her. And people used to always think they were twins and they'd mm. all say, Oh my gosh, I didn't know you had an identical twin. And I mean, they looked a lot alike, but I never thought they looked identical. So I was always shocked when people thought they were identical twins. I'm like, look, they, they look like sisters, but they're not identical. So you could kind of say that maybe for this too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they just are a lot of all very similar, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Travis James left us a comment <laughs> and the comment in its entirety is dreadful book. <laughs> so um, I don't think any of us thought it was dreadful, but, you know, we definitely kind of came more down on the side of less good than than some other people thought. So it looks like Travis is definitely in that camp. Yes. Yeah, I wouldn't say dreadful, but that did make me laugh uh, <laughs> when he said that. So I enjoyed the book. It just, yeah, it just wasn't all that great in my opinion. But uh, Gail thinks otherwise. Gail says, one of my favorite Voyager novels. have read it at least a couple of times and probably will do so again. Was fun to begin to see Chakotay as captain of Voyager. Thanks, Christy G. And yes, I do agree. It is fun to see Chakotay as a captain. Mm -hmm. And yeah, this just goes to show that, you know, different novels will hit different people in different ways. And, you know, anybody's favorite book might be somebody's least favorite book. But it's fun to know that we have these different listeners who can bring different perspectives to this conversation. And, you know, I'm sure there's stuff on this show that I've said that I absolutely love that people out there are going, really, you liked this? So, you know, we all have different opinions and I'm really, really glad you can share yours with us. Thank you so much. And, and I always say I don't like olives, but some people love them. So who like that's great. And I'm never one to say, oh, if I don't like something, then you can't like it either. I think it's great that they love the book. You know, it just didn't work for me as much as it did for them. But I think it's wonderful. I mean, I would be really sad if everybody hated the book. I was like, ooh, there's a book out there that no one likes. It's Star Trek. Ugh, the thought of that just ugh, freaks me out. Exactly. Yeah. And those people that say that, like, you know, because I don't like something, you can't like it either. And I judge you for not liking it. Those guys are a lot of fun to be next to in line at a subway. Let me tell you. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> exactly hey yeah and you notice we never said that their opinions were wrong no of course not there's there's no wrong opinions when it comes to this stuff so you know justin and uh and gail and 
Jen, I'm really glad you guys enjoyed that book. Um, it might be one that I might revisit later and have a different opinion about as well, but uh, didn't quite do it for me this time. But I'm really glad you guys are here to give your opinions. So if you want to take part in this conversation and have us read your comments on air and mock you for your opinions. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, make sure to leave a comment on the show page for this episode and we'll get to it in a future episode of Literary Treks. And we'd love to hear your opinions. But with that said, let's uh, jump over to the feature. And this week we are talking about the next book in the post-nemesis continuity and the first book in the Titan series. So we're going to be talking about Titan taking wing by Michael A. Martin and Andy Mangles. Ooh, yeah. Let's bring it on. <laughs> in 2005, we got a number of novels that kind of kicked off the post nemesis continuity as it's come to be called. And this novel had kind of an important job because this novel in particular is the first novel in a new series featuring a new ship and a new crew led by Captain William T. Riker. And that, of course, is Star Trek Titan. And this is the first book, Taking Wing, by Michael A. Martin and Andy Mangles. And in this one, we're introduced to this ship and this crew that we got a little bit of a taste of in Star Trek Nemesis, just by way of Riker mentioning that uh, he was going to be captain of the Titan and Picard asks him, you know, where's the Titan off to? And he says, Romulus, we're going to, you know, lead up the peace mission following this whole debacle with Shinzon that we got in, in Star Trek Nemesis here. And in this book, we get to see that mission. So this was kind of a nice tie in that really kicked things off for the Titan crew. Now, I want to start out by talking a little bit about the Titan and her crew. We learn a little bit more about this ship. It's a, it's a ship of exploration. They're planning on going on a long-term exploration mission to the fringes of Federation space and exploring strange new worlds. So it seems odd that they're going to go to Romulus. But the explanation for that is they're kind of at the last minute given this assignment to follow up on what happened in Nemesis. So we have, like I said, Riker is the captain, his first officer, who he has to kind of convince a bit at the beginning. We're still seeing him put that crew together. He's convincing Christine Vale, who's the security chief on the Enterprise from the A Time 2 series, to be his first officer aboard the Titan. And let's start there, because I, I really liked that little bit of story and that little bit of continuation. Um, what did you think about this whole... Uh, recruitment of Christine and, and how that all goes about? That's a tough question because I have got to know this character over the last, I guess, you know, 14 years now, and I really enjoy her character. So to ask me now, how do I feel about her joining the crew? It's like, I've always <laughs> known her to be there for a long time because um, so backing up on, on this book, I read this when it came out but I had never read the A Time 2 series, mm -hmm. and I didn't even read Death in Winter, which takes place before this. So coming into this book now, having read those other books, I have a different outlook on the book than I did before. And knowing Christine Vale from the A Time 2 series, 
makes me really enjoy her even more as an introduction to the Titan because we got to know her on the Enterprise. And it does seem a little too early in her career because she was a lieutenant and then she got promoted to lieutenant commander. And then Riker promoted her six months later to full commander. And she even questioned Mm -hmm. him and she said, hey, how can I be your first officer? And you're telling me that Deanna Troy is going to report to me, but she's a full commander and I'm a lieutenant commander. I don't see how that's going to work. And he's like, well, congratulations, lieutenant commander. You're now a commander. And she's like, but I just got promoted six months ago. So she did jump from (laughs) lieutenant to commander fairly quickly. And, you know, it's like the whole Kirk thing with Star Trek 09, you know, he's in Starfleet Academy and now he's a captain. It's like that kind of feeling. And so it feels a little, you know, too forced in a way to me. So, but I enjoy seeing her character there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's almost like Riker says to her, what, like there's a rule, <laughs> you right. know, like he, he's the captain now. He can kind of do what he wants is, is kind of the impression that it comes across as. And I thought that was really, I don't know if it just didn't strike quite the right tone, especially with her kind of objecting to serving on the crew initially because she felt uncomfortable with Riker uh, having his wife be, you know, such a high up member of the senior staff as well. So it kind of almost contributes to this feeling of, I don't want to say lack of discipline, but just like a little bit more laid back casual than maybe she'd feel comfortable with. So I thought, thought that was interesting that Riker kind of had to persuade her and, um, assure her that this isn't going to be a problem because I, I think she raises some valid concerns that, you know, whether or not we think Riker will fall into these, you know, pitfalls with regards to his wife. I mean, these are characters we know, you know, they're professional, they'll get through it. But I think on the face of it, it's kind of a valid concern that she has regarding uh, Riker and Troy serving together like that. Yeah, I mean, imagine your boss today and you find out that you are going to have your boss's spouse report to you. Eh, it's a little awkward. Yeah, there are definitely issues. So do you do you feel that Riker addressed them enough and set her mind at ease? Or or do you think that was a little weak? Um, Maybe a little weak, but... It was enough because he went to visit her and it it wasn't something that she just changed her mind overnight. It's like, I think he said this was like the third time he's, he's going to try to pursue this one more time to, to convince her to come over and, and he addresses her issues. And I think she's just thinking, well, if, if he's on board, then I'm on board, you know? I kind of also just have to say, I liked how that, scene went like that whole sequence of events went because it's obvious the authors were paying very close attention to the end of nemesis to figure out how this all fits together because at first i was like there's something seems odd here because when riker leaves the enterprise in nemesis picard asks where's the titan off to he says oh romulus we're gonna do this this and this oh okay excellent serving with you's been an honor blah 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 and he leaves um and I was like, well, at the start of this novel, he's on Titan and he thinks they're going on a mission of exploration until Admiral Akar gives him this new mission. But I think the implication is that it's this shuttle trip to the Enterprise to convince Christine Vale one last time. And during that trip is when he goes up to the ready room and visits Picard and they have that scene. And I kept expecting them to kind of include 
that scene in there. He and he does say he's going to visit Picard. And so I was like, that's clever. You know, everything does fit together pretty well here. Yeah, that is pretty clever. I hadn't thought about that until you started talking about it. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So I I like it when the authors just pay that much extra attention to the details. So with regards to the Titan herself and her crew, they're kind of trying something a little different in this novel. And we have what's being called the most diverse crew in Starfleet history and I was kind of, while I was reading this, I was thinking of Star Trek, the motion picture. And <laughs> so was I. <laughs> yeah, because there's so many different and interesting background aliens in that film. And I, I seem to remember a Christopher L. Bennett novel talking about how that was almost an experiment at the time, too, to have a really diverse crew. That's true. That's right. His novels did uh, indicate that. Yeah. So I, I, I like that they're kind of borrowing a page from that bit of history and we have the uss titan and they're they're going so far as to make modifications to people's quarters and the different living arrangements to account for various alien physiologies and all that sort of thing because not only do we have just a diversity of alien species we have a diversity of people who aren't even humanoid which i think is a really cool thing and something you know you can do that in a book at the time more easily than you could on television for sure so i think they make really good use of the medium to present us with a crew like this absolutely and if anything the crews should be more diverse and you know we're at the 24th century at this point and the federation has been around for 200 years and so as time goes on, I expect that these starships will show will start to show more diversity, showing more different members of other planets, of other species serving aboard these starships. So this does seem like the perfect time to start migrating in that direction with the Titan books, because also, you know, Riker has put off command for such a long time. And so now to give him command and then it just be another starship like any other starship is kind of a lackluster thought, but to think that, okay, this the thing that's different about this one is it's the most diverse crew. So this gives him something unique to be commander of and to be known to uh, command the most diverse crew. And what would really be great if, if, if in future books, if Riker were to leave the Titan, well, I guess I do know what happens with future books, but anyway, if future, <laughs> future books come out, uh, it would make a lot of sense if you had an alien captain, someone non-human, uh, command the Titan with this diverse crew. Mm-hmm. Because that's actually something, and and it's not in this novel, but later in the series that gets mentioned by other characters is, yeah, we have a really diverse crew, but who's at the top, right? Two humans. You've got right. Riker and Vale, and there's a bit of resentment against that. So, you know... You still have the the human captain and and that sort of thing. So you know, there's still room for more diversity, I think, than than what we usually get. So, yeah, maybe one day. <laughs> exactly. Well, along with a really diverse crew comes more names <laughs> that are even more difficult to pronounce than usual. I so, know. I love putting these in the notes, and I thought I'm glad Dan's <laughs> hosting this week as the lead because you know he gets to read all the names. 
So I, I kind of, the one good thing is this series has been long running and this is the first book, but I have read all of the Titan novels that follow. So I've got kind of in my head how I've pronounced these names all along. So I don't know if they're even close to what other people say, but uh, for example, the chief medical officer, who is a character I find really fascinating, Dr. Shenti Isek Eris Ri. And I don't know if that's even close, but we he's usually just called Dr. Ree. So that's yes. easy. R-E-E. <laughs> Dr. Ree is easy. You could have just said Dr. Ree if you wanted to. Well, I wanted to give it a try. <laughs> <laughs> but this guy is a male uh, of a species called Pakwathan. And again, I don't know if that's that's how I've always pronounced it. And he's basically like a dinosaur. He's like a velociraptor kind of thing. And they talk about how when he's walking, he's got the little claw that kind of clicks on the floor. And I always think of Jurassic Park, that yeah. scene where they're hiding in the kitchen and they're jumping up on counters and stuff, <laughs> yep. you know, and he scares a lot of people. Like there's a lot of kind of very visceral reaction to him because, you know, humans are mammals who evolved running away from fearsome creatures who are trying to eat them <laughs> so you know there's a lot of stuff like this like he eats raw meat uh in the crew lounge and that puts some people off and that sort of thing what do you think of dr re i i would say dr re is one of my favorite of the titan characters in the book series because of the reasons you're saying he's very different and unique and i love the way he's introduced in this book because uh, Troy knows which species he is, but Riker has never bothered to look it up. He just knows <laughs> I'm getting a doctor and he's obviously experienced. So why, why would I even bother looking at that? And Troy's just like, Oh, you know, just wondering. And they're heading down the corridor to go to the transporter room when he's beaming on. And she's basically just smiling and giggling. He's like, what is going on? What is going on? She couldn't <laughs> wait to see his reaction to it, uh, to seeing this large, doctor that looks like a dinosaur and and Riker handles it very diplomatically and you know he does his poker face but it does startle him at first but I love how they mention how he has to how Dr. Ree has to duck in the doorways because he's taller than the doorway so he has to bring his head down which is funny because they also said the same thing that Admiral Akar has to kind of lower his head because he's kind of tall through doorways and I thought you know when you have a ship especially one with multiple species on it's like, I'm surprised the doorways aren't a little taller and bigger uh, mm -hmm. to accommodate all kinds of sizes. But uh, just imagine how a lot of these crew members come into sick bay and find this doctor that looks like a dinosaur and he's taking his claws to you to operate or, or heal you or do whatever. And yeah, so people are a little standoffish, but for the most part, everybody is, quickly accommodates and and feels comfortable around him they just know that you know well he's here he's a doctor he's a starfleet officer and so i shouldn't be afraid well next up we have dr zin rahavre who is a male ephrosian engineer and he's unique because he's one of the designers of the ship who's kind of coming along on her maiden voyage and we get a little bit of hints to his background he was involved in designing the class of ship that the titan is and titan's sister ship was involved in an accident that he kind of blames himself for and that's a story that we'll see play out over the course of the series uh, i mentioned he's an ephrosian 
Everybody out there, you might remember the Federation president from Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. He was an Afrosian. Uh, we see another one in Star Trek IV as well. They basically have big, long white hair and uh, white, long mustaches. <laughs> and aren't they pretty uh, sexually active? I think that comes up in a later novel. I don't know if that was established before or if that's established later in Titan. I can't but, remember uh, either, but I do remember, I know in later books, I really like his character. Mm, yeah, he's definitely an interesting one who gets a lot to do later. The chief engineer of the Titan at the moment, though, Lieutenant Commander Nidani Ledra, who's a female Tiberonian. And if you if you want to remember these guys, they're uh, Dr. Severin in the famous original series episode, The Way to Eden guy with the big ears who surrounded himself with hippies who like to sing. Uh, that's, that's what a Tiberonian is. I, I can't so. remember the, well, any of the songs that they sang. Could you do that for me, please? Heading out to Eden. Yeah, brother. <laughs> <laughs> I really didn't think you were going to do it. I love it. <laughs> oh, my absolute favorite is going to snap my fingers and jump for joy. Got a clean bill of health from Dr. McCoy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you watch too much TV. <laughs> uh, just Star Trek. Just Star Trek. <laughs> well, the chief of security of Titan is a male unjoined trill, Lieutenant Commander Ronald Carew, and he's a transfer over from the Enterprise. He was, I most remember him from the Section 31 novel Rogue, the Star Trek The Next Generation novel, and he was the um, the partner of uh, Hawk, Lieutenant Hawk from Star Trek First Contact. He was killed by the Borg in that movie. So... Uh, Keru is kind of getting over that loss and moving past that. And that kind of informs some of his story going forward from here. Yeah. I, I remember him, uh, being, uh, Lieutenant Hawk's partner and again, having read the future books, uh, yeah, I've always liked his character too. See, it's hard to talk about these characters because in this book, they're just being introduced and I know so much more about them later. Mm -hmm. That's the thing. And I keep, having to remember no no that comes up later don't mention that yet but yeah i'm doing the same thing uh so lieutenant commander jaza najem is a male bajoran science officer and uh, we get a little bit with him in this uh, novel because you know there's such a diverse crew there's a diversity not just of physiologies but philosophies and that sort of thing and we learn that he's a very uh religious bajoran he's a follower of the Bajoran religion as well. Um, so he had an interesting scene, I think with another character we're going to talk about later where they're all having uh, a meal in the mess hall and he's kind of pushing this young cadet that we'll mention later uh, into taking a more active role in the conversation through various means and stuff. So I, I kind of like him. He seems like he's going to be kind of a mentor type figure for a few people aboard. Yeah. I think uh, again, we'll, we'll see some more of him coming up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, next up, Lieutenant Melora Paslar, uh, and that name may sound familiar to you from the Deep Space Nine episode, Melora, uh, from the second season. She is uh, Elysian, and she's from a planet that has a very low surface gravity, almost almost zero gravity, 
And so she has a very difficult time operating in, you know, our 1G environment. So, the, you know, kind of the issues were those were dealt with in that Deep Space Nine episode. And we see those carry on into this one as well. Um, I, re I really like this character. I remember when I was a kid watching that Deep Space Nine episode, I really didn't like her. And then as an adult, I was like, oh, OK, I see what they're they're trying to tell with this story. And then in Titan, I really like her character going forward. Um, she plays a big role in a couple previous novels that I personally have not read, but the planet she's from is called Gemworld. And there's a two part novel series dealing with her planet and a crisis that happens there. Uh, Star Trek, the next generation novels. Yeah, because it's really great because when we're introduced to her character, uh, she has gone through a lot over the last several years from when we saw her on Deep Space Nine. And so she's no longer that that bitter woman that is kind of mad with her situation with everybody around her. She's come to really grow a lot and become a lot friendlier and a, a more likable character. Um, and so she is, she does get to be a very interesting character in these books that you will grow to love. So next up, and there's just a few more of these that we've highlighted here. Ensign Ailey Levina, who is a female Selkie and they're kind of an aquatic species. So when she's on duty, she's wearing uh, kind of an, a hydro suit that's surrounding her with water. So she doesn't, you know, dry out. Uh, her quarters are entirely filled with water and it's held back by a force field. So when the doors open, you see the, this water and she goes in and out there, which is kind of cool, but you really hope the force field never fails because <laughs> that would be a, a disaster for that deck. And, uh, she's, yeah, that, uh, that's really cool. And Paslar's, uh, quarters are accommodating her with no gravity. So I love how right. the different, uh, quarters accommodate the crew members. Yeah, I forgot to mention that. She's kind of, her quarters, uh, Melora Pazlar's are, are, are oriented vertically instead of horizontally, which yeah, I thought was kind of neat. That is cool. Yeah. And um, Lavina, I think, is the uh, helmsman or helms person. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah. So next, uh, th and this is a character we get a little bit of in this novel, but not a lot. Uh, cadet Zurin Dakal, who's a male Cardassian cadet. Uh, and he's an operations and communications officer on Titan. Um, and finally, also, <laughs> here's another one. Cadet Torvig Bukart Nguv. I'm not sure if that's pronounced right. I Basically, we, we mostly call him Torvig. Yes. <laughs> that's Torvig. easy. Uh, he's a male, partially cybernetic being called a Choblik. And he's an engineering trainee. And the way I've seen him described, they don't get really into his description much in this novel, but I think he's kind of like a small, I don't know, not, not rodent, but no, like, almost like, like almost like a miniature kangaroo looking thing. Or? Yeah. Kangaroo or deer type yeah. animal kind of, but he's got cybernetic um, things that allow him to, you know, grasp things and, and have opposable digits. I get, apparently, and this all comes up in a later novel. They were cybernetically changed by another species and kind of elevated to sentience or something like that. What are those uh, animals with the, the big eyes? They're small. They climb trees. I'm trying to remember the name. Um, oh, they got big wide eyes. Yeah. Lemur. Lemur. That's kind of what it reminds me of. Yeah. Kind of lemur like. Yeah. That makes sense. 
Oh, and then we also have uh, Braylick, who is a chief petty officer who's a female Ferengi. She's a oh. geologist. And, uh, yeah, one of the characters, I can't remember who, is commenting on, like, well, you know, uh, you're wearing clothes. And she's like, yep, we can now wear clothes because of Rom. <laughs> Grand Nagus. <laughs> Yeah, I almost missed her. I almost jumped over her. Thanks for pointing that out. I really like Braylick. I think she's a really cool character. She's kind of a little rough around the edges, which I kind of like. She's she's a little bit, I, I would say, I guess, blue collar as opposed to white collar, just in the way she interacts with people. And I think that brings a really interesting thing to her character. She's kind of more casual. And uh, for example, there's a great scene in the crew lounge where, you know, this officer is stumbling through his words and stuff and then he gets up to leave and Braylick's like you know he likes you talking to this other person at the table like just so you know he's being weird because he likes you and blah 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 and you know she's just one of those people that kind of doesn't have time for silliness she just tells it like it is I really like that about her yeah it's almost like she's a um, rougher grittier edgier Neelix in a sense to hmm. me you know, because Neelix yeah. is like, you know, kind of interacting with the crew and just kind of want to help out and everywhere. But just imagine if he was edgier and he just kind of stated his opinion on everything. Yeah, I like that. I can see that totally. So we've got all of these crew members aboard the Titan and they're expecting to be going on this mission of exploration and going out and seeking out strange new worlds and all that stuff. But instead, this Romulan mission gets dropped in their laps and they have to go to Romulus with this contingent of a couple other supply ships, as well as three Klingon ships as part of this kind of fleet to represent the Federation in Romulan power sharing negotiations. So on Romulus, things are in a bit of turmoil. We have the Praetor, Talora, is uh, kind of has a little bit of power, but she hasn't consolidated it yet. There's also the Romulan military led by commander Donatra and commander Saran. And there's the Riemann faction. And there's also the unificationists, uh, Spock's group who, you know, they're, they have a little bit of a part to play in this as well. So that's kind of the mission they're on is to facil facilitate all this and basically prevent a shooting war. <laughs> No pressure. Not a not a really important mission or anything. No, but you know, this this really fascinated me. I don't remember this being as much of an interest to me the first time I read this book years ago, but mm -hmm. I really enjoy this Romulan storyline and I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that we read Death in Winter, which I had never read before. So Death in Winter kind of starts this whole thing up with the Romulans. I mean, really Nemesis does. But we really get deeper into what's happening on Romulus and with the Senate of all these different factions in the and somewhat with the Remans and stuff when we get in Death and Winter. And then this book kind of takes place shortly after that. And it's just digging deeper into it. And for some reason, I'm just so captivated by this. I really love how it's not just 
oh, Shinzon came and he tried to take over the Empire and then he died and then everything, everything went back to normal. There's this whole civil war going, not just between two groups, not just between three groups, but like multiple groups. And, and the Remans are looking for their independence and, and they've been slaves all this time and they're looking for a new land, a new continent to settle on and kind of start over again because they don't want to live in darkness anymore and the Romans don't want them there. And then, you know, the political factions that are going on there, who's going to be in control and who's backstabbing who and who's friendly and who's not. And then the Klingons, the Klingons are involved with the Remans and helping them. And the Federation has called it. There's just a lot of meat in there to chew on. There's a lot going on. And I just find it so fascinating. I enjoy seeing Riker take command of the Titan and the new crew and everything. But this whole Romulan storyline, I'm really into that. Yeah. And it's funny because I think I was very much in the same position you are. I remember reading this years ago when it first came out and being really fascinated by the Titan and, you know, really excited that they're going to go on this exploration mission, but thinking like, oh, it's boring Romulan politics, like enough. Can we just get past this? But this time around, like you, I'm really digging this. I'm really into it. And I think it's partially a mixture, like you said, of the fact that we read Death in Winter and got this setup. But I think it's also, for me anyway, knowing where it's going in future books that yes. really made me interested. Like I didn't realize at the time what they were setting up and how this would carry forward and be such a big deal. Right. At the time I was just like, Oh, I'm so sick of politics. Ooh, we've got, uh, in addition to the groups that I mentioned before, we also have the Tal Shiar. They're yeah. trying to carve out their little bit of power and also a group that's kind of been known as the Warhawks. They're the ones that, kind of want to go to war with the Federation and everyone else. And yes. uh, they're led by Senator Pardek, uh, who you might remember from Unification Two-Parter. Uh, he's the guy that's played by Malachi Throne, who also played uh, Commodore Mendez in the two-parter, um, the Menagerie in the original series. Interesting. Oh my little... gosh, I never made that connection. <laughs> you're Interesting right. little bit of trivia there. I always yeah. love that. Oh my gosh, you're so right. I never even thought about that. Yeah. So um, this might be a good time to say we're probably going to get into spoilers now. Yes. Would you say? Yes, definitely. Definitely getting into spoilers. And 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 I'm agreeing to your point there because I'm also thinking when we probably first read this book, we were so interested to learn about the new Titan crew. Mm -hmm. Now, we're already, we know about this crew. We've had several books with this crew. We're already familiar with this crew. Now we're really learning to appreciate the story more and not so focus on what we're getting in a new crew. Definitely. Yeah. So this, this group led by Senator Pardek, this was interesting because I was like, Oh, Pardek, that's an interesting character. I want to learn more about him. I'm glad he's got such a big role in this. And, you know, we're going to really, you know, get inside his head and see why he's such a war. Oh, Oh no. Okay. He's dead. <laughs> they assassinated right. him pretty quickly in this book. Mm -hmm. And there's another senator that kind of takes over from him, uh, Senator Durgic. And uh, so Pardek was assassinated by the Tal Shiar uh, because, you know, that's what they do. That's just their thing. That's just what they do. <laughs> hey, you know, it's a Friday night. What do you want to do? Let's go after Pardek. Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, not what you want to do. Assassinate <laughs> a senator? Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I mean, you know, that's probably not far off, but uh, so, yeah, we've got all these factions and they're vying for, you know, different shares of power. And it's really a powder keg. 
you know, there's these negotiations that are going to take place between all these groups, but the Praetor also wants to have another secret meeting of just a few of the groups before the main meeting, which, you know, I think Riker agreed to a little bit too quickly to my mind, but okay. You know, it's just very dangerous politics being played here. And in the middle of it all is uh, Ambassador Spock and his unification group, which I thought was a really great addition to this novel. Sometimes I feel like in modern novels, they like to bring in Spock fairly willy nilly. And it's just like, oh, Spock again. Okay, this is a really busy guy. But in this novel, it actually makes sense because they're on Romulus and he's really becoming a major political force on Romulus. So what did you think of this whole aspect of the story and Spock's role? I would say that Spock's role is my second favorite thing about this book because oh. you're absolutely right. He belongs here. This does not feel forced. This does not feel like a cameo. It's not like, oh, we got to have Spock in this book just to have Spock in this book. He belongs here. And again, it continues and escalates his involvement in the whole unification. What we saw in that episode or those two episodes, now we're seeing that he has to put so much more effort into that because he's trying to unite the Vulcans and the Romulans together and have the Romulans discover more about their Vulcan heritage. But now he's helping with the Remans. He's now helping the Remans try to unify with the Romulans. So and at the same so at the same time he's saying, Hey, Remans, Romulans, we're gonna to try to get you to come together and then try to get everyone to come together with the Vulcans and bring in some of the Vulcan philosophy, which is gonna help unite all of our peoples together. And yeah, this is a big dream, this is a big goal, and maybe one man can't do it, unlike his mirror counterpart who learns that he can do it. It only takes one. But he has all the passion and hope. I know he doesn't have a lot of emotions, but there's passion and hope in what he has to make this happen. And even Admiral Akar and, and Riker even look at Spock like, you know, really, you know, can you do all this? And we really, really need you to come back to Starfleet and the Federation for meetings and meet with Nan Bako and all this stuff. And he's like, no, you know, I, I'll, I'll come back to Earth and have a meeting. And if you say, no, I can't come back, I'm probably not going to listen to you. I have a mm -hmm. mission that I need to handle to help unite all these people together. And it just takes it to a whole nother level. Yeah, the, the novel accomplishes something here because it would feel weird if he wasn't in it. And I right. think that really makes his role make sense here. Yeah, because if and we were it, reading this novel and Spock wasn't in this, we'd be like, well, what's Spock doing during this? Because isn't he on Romulus? Why Why are we not seeing him? He has to be seen. Exactly. And I like the, um, the reverence that they treat his character with that, you know, sometimes can go a little over the top in, in Star Trek novels when you're talking about the original crew and the living legends and that kind of thing. But there was just enough of that in here that I really liked it. Like, when he's basically there's a rescue mission and we'll get to the subject of that rescue mission in a minute, but there's a rescue mission. And along with the, the target of this mission, they also beam up Spock ambassador Spock. And there's a couple of security guards in the room and Spock just goes ahead and steps off the transporter pen. They're like, sir, you'll have to remain here. He's like, fair enough. Fine. 
And then Riker and Troy walk in and Riker says, Ambassador Spock. And the two security guards go like, oh, (laughs) I didn't realize that. You know, I I love that he's not just immediately recognized on site as a living legend. But you hear his name, you still kind of go, oh, got to pay attention to this. I I didn't realize this was Spock, you know. Like, I just like that little bit of attention to detail that... He's not revered by everyone in the galaxy that, you know, everyone can just immediately recognize him, but his name still carries a lot of weight. And sometimes in some of these novels, when we introduce Spock or or one of the TOS characters in the 24th century, there's all this flash, not flashback, but all these references to, oh, well, during the original five-year mission, we ran to this. During the original five-year mission, we did that. And, you know, oh... Kirk's not here, but if Kirk was here, he would tell me this. Oh, this reminds me of McCoy. There's none of that kind of stuff going mm-hmm. on. I think there is one reference maybe to the original five-year mission, like something. I, I, I don't even remember. But, I mean, there, we don't have that, you know, reminiscing about Kirk in the old days. Like, all that is not here. Spock is in the current time. Spock is now. That's what we're dealing with in this book. And I also enjoy seeing an older Spock in this situation because lately we've been watching the second season of Discovery and we're seeing a younger Spock. So I enjoy watching Discovery of this younger Spock and then going to this and seeing really what the last big mission of Spock is going through in, in this last part of his life. So mm-hmm. and, and it just makes sense that he's here. Yeah. It, it's nice that they're using him as a current character yes. with current concerns rather than um, a, somebody referred to this the other day talking about something else. I didn't, I've never watched this particular one, but apparently there's an episode of South Park that has something called member berries and it's these, <laughs> Apparently, it's it's like when a movie or something basically says to the audience, like, oh, do you remember this? Wasn't this cool? So, you know, not to rag on Star Wars. I really like Star Wars. But like in The Force Awakens, when Finn finds the little uh, training thing that Luke Skywalker practiced against uh, with the blast helmet down that little floating orb thing and and the camera focuses on it. he's like oh, whoa what's this and then you know that's kind of like oh, remember that do you remember that and <laughs> there's not a lot of that in this novel which no. i really appreciate i like that they kind of keep that to a minimum do you remember chris farley's character on saturday night live where he would be a talk show host and he'd have like a celebrity on that he likes to like watch on tv or movies and he'd be the whole oh, time he'd yeah. be like so so you remember the time when you, and he was always like doing these memories, like, uh, uh, and do you remember the time when you did this? Yeah, that was great. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and so many of these cameo appear and it's, this is more than a cameo appearance, but so many of them in these novels feel like that. And yeah. this one really didn't. I feel like it used the character in a way that made sense rather than, Ooh, look, everybody here's Spock, which, right. You know, I'm I'm not p- picking on particular novels or pointing a finger at anything in particular, but sometimes those appearances really feel like that. So I was glad we didn't get that here. Yeah. And I hadn't thought about it until we were talking through it, but it just, yeah, it, it, it felt now, it felt current, like he belongs. Well, I kind of teased this a little bit. There's uh, this rescue mission and kind of a secondary mission of the Titan is to rescue an undercover operative who's been 
uh, working on Romulus, who was making contact with Spock's unification movement and that sort of thing. And uh, he's he's been undercover on Romulus, posing as, as a Romulan, but now he's been thrown in prison and uh, has made a number of Reman allies there. Uh, I think that his undercover name was Rukath or Rukath, but we find out that it's actually Tuvok from the Starship Voyager, who's now working with Starfleet Intelligence and had you know been working undercover on Romulus. And I thought this was an interesting character to include because he has connections to some of the other characters, one character in particular um, on Titan, and that's the um, Admiral Akaar, who also has connections with Spock. So there's all these like interesting connections. And I know I'm kind of going against what I just said that, you know, they're making all these references, but this is a little different because it's kind of the, the novel verse back history that has been created for these characters. Yeah. I recently read the lost era novel, the sundered that has some of these characters all together in it. So that was kind of a neat little tie in. Yeah. I was saying earlier when we were talking about Spock, I said, I feel like there was one reference to TOS and this was it right here because Admiral Akaar says that to Spock, I know we have a history going back to my birth, something like mm-hmm. that. Like that was the only reference to TOS when he was talking to Spock. Like, you know, I'm going to put faith in you. I believe you. We have a, this long history. You were there at my birth. You know, that's how long you've been. Re-. Like that was the only reference to that. But yeah, in, in this case, then he had served with Tuvok on the Excelsior. They do talk about serving with Captain Sulu. So, I mean, there's a little reminiscing there, but it wasn't real big. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, that whole history, it's really going to come into play in the next novel without (laughs) giving too much away about that. But, you know, they're setting things up here, but not in a really obvious way, which is kind of cool. It's just like, Akaar went on this mission because he's worried about his old comrade Tuvok. So there's that connection there. You know, it's just a nice little cool way to connect these characters. What did you think? And I mean, it's kind of hard to think back to this novel without thinking about all the novels that come after it. But what did you think of Tuvok's inclusion in this novel? And did you kind of get the sense that they were setting him up for what happens later or did you think it was separate from the rest? I don't know. That might be a weird question. (laughs) Well, I'll just say that having Tuvok in here again, like Spock makes sense because when the novel starts off, there is the secret operative, this undercover operative. And I didn't remember who that was. And they're pretending, I mean, I know there was Starfleet or, or their undercover Federation or whatever, and that they are posing as a Romulan. But uh, it makes sense that you would use a Vulcan for that. And then when it was revealed a few chapters later that it was Tuvok, I was like, oh, yeah, duh, of course, I, I should have remembered that. <laughs> but again, it makes sense because if you're going to send somebody in to pose as a Romulan, it makes sense to use a Vulcan with minor surgical alterations, a uh, member of Starfleet. Uh, someone who's been involved in security, who has led security of Voyager, and Voyager has now returned and Tuvok needs a new assignment. And so it just makes sense that it would be Tuvok. And again, 
we're not hearing about Tuvok reminiscing about his Voyager days and how it feels to be back into the Alpha Quadrant. I mean, it's just we know why he's there and he's there and he's current. And so, again, it really works for me. And to see him mm-hmm. with Spock, too, is great. Uh, seeing the two of them together. Yeah, it's kind of neat. Star Trek's at the time, probably two most famous uh, regular series Vulcans. Cool. Yeah. yeah, and they're both old. I mean, you think of Spock as being the old Vulcan and Tuvok not, but really Spock's only just a few decades older than Tuvok. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always, Tuvok's age is always a, a conundrum to me because, you know, I think Sarek in uh, Journey to Babel is supposed to be about the same age as Tuvok is in Voyager. He just never looked that way to me. He always looked like a pretty young and spry guy, but... I don't know. I guess, I guess he wears it really well. <laughs> well, I, I often think, well, same with T'Pol. I mean, she's yeah much older Over 60, than what yeah. she looks in human years. I often think that Spock ages more rapidly because he's half human. That makes sense. Now I can't Definitely. explain Sarek, but <laughs> you know, maybe he's just has, you know, he just goes gray earlier than most. Well, maybe when they say like in the TNG episode, that he's 202 maybe he's one of those vulcans that lies about his age and he's actually closer to like 250 300 at the time <laughs> true yeah maybe <laughs> <laughs> he's he's vulcans are famously vain i think i think they've well established that <laughs> yes definitely not of course but uh yeah so we've got this whole situation um and basically what happens is the taking Spock away from the uh, where he's at with uh, negotiating with the Remans and kind of holding them back. He's kind of been a calming influence on them saying like, no, we'll get what we need from negotiation and that sort of thing. Don't attack the Romulans. You know, we're all about pacifism and, and we're not going to take that route. But when Titan kind of takes him out of there, Spock's worried that without him there, the Remans are going to go on the offensive. And sure enough, that happens. So the Remans, you know, launch an attack on Romulus or maybe not an attack, but they send their ships in a very threatening posture and make demands of the Romulan government uh, saying that they want this particular continent on Romulus to settle on. They don't want to be stuck on in the harsh environment of Remus anymore. And, Riker has a particularly unique solution because things get out of hand very quickly. There's fire exchange, Titans damaged and all this stuff, but having the Klingons there presents him with kind of an interesting solution. What did you think of this whole, uh, agreement that Riker has them undertake at the end here? Does it feel realistic to you? I guess yeah, is that's kind where, of where I was I'm just going. hesitating. It didn't really feel all that realistic to me, but it is an interesting concept that I want to see how that plays out. I remember at some point Riker's like, aha, I have an idea. It's like, ooh, what triggered that? You know, and then this is the idea that he had. And I'm just like, eh, I don't know about this whole, you know, Klingons, you know, the Remans under the protection of the Klingons or what. I mean, because you're really gambling there with that situation. But I, it's it's an interesting concept, though. I, I really mm-hmm. like that. Uh, you know what I almost think now? 
I almost feel like I think I would like, even though I don't know how realistic it is, I think I would have rather seen Troy come up with that being diplomatic officer. There's actually an interesting little bit in this novel where Troy seems kind of annoyed that Riker has gone into his ready room with Spock and hammered out this kind of agreement. Uh, and she's kind of kept out of it yeah. and they don't really go anywhere with it after that, at least not in this novel, but Troy's kind of like, I'm the diplomatic officer. Like, why wasn't I consulted on this? And I'm kind of right there with her. Like that seemed kind of a bit of a misstep by Riker personally. Yeah, that really hit home with me because there's been times where I handle certain accounts and I, I mean, it doesn't happen that often, but I find that there's some, you know, meeting between some people and it's like, well, wait a second, that's my account. Like, why am I not even included? Like, if anybody should be in that meeting, it's me. And that's exactly how it was with her. I really, yeah, that didn't play out in this and I don't remember if it plays out in the next book. I'm, I'm sure that it does. And so yeah. It has to. I can't even remember myself, but because it's been since these books came out, which are 14 years ago now, yeah. almost exactly 14 years ago, this book came out, which is when I would have read it. Cause I read it fairly soon after it was released. Yeah. I, and I don't remember, I remember the broad strokes of the story, but a lot of the minutia is, is completely, I've forgotten. So yeah, this, the solution we're talking about basically, you know, they kind of get the idea that like, well, if the Remans are made a protectorate of the Federation, that could work. But no, that's not really going to work. They wouldn't go for that. But how about the Klingons? You know, they're both quote unquote warrior races. You know, maybe they'll they'll go for that. And I don't know this. It seems like if this is a powder keg, this is like throwing a match on it. Like it yeah. feels really iffy and you know, I guess the um, basically the reason it works is because Commander Donatra says, yeah, I'm good with this. And she controls the military. So whatever the military says is going to work is going to work because the Praetor can't oppose her own military. Right. She's kind of got to go along with it. So, you and know, she's as not far really as the true Praetor either, you know, it's like, no. Yeah. That's just, the other thing, too. She's kind of just an opportunistic person who's taken the throne because everyone else is dead at this point. Right. Right. And Donatra seeing her after, you know, nemesis and seeing her, it was great seeing her too. Yeah. Although she and commander Saran, I guess have kind of uh, stepped in it a little bit as we learn towards the end of this uh, novel, because they had acquired <laughs> acquired being the key word, um, huge numbers of ships and military forces that they were keeping hidden and yeah. yeah, they were hiding them in what's called the great bloom, which I thought was interesting as well. The great bloom is basically this spatial rift that was created when the scimitar Shinzon's ship was destroyed in star Trek nemesis. So I think at one point they actually refer to it. The, the Titan crew refers to it as like a, a sort of memorial to data, which I thought yeah. was kind of neat, but they're hiding all these ships in here and they've all disappeared now. So the implication is they've either been destroyed by the rift, but there's no debris or they've been sucked into it. Uh, maybe sent somewhere. I think that's kind of what we figure out towards the end of this novel, because what happens is 
Um, Commander Denatra convinces Riker to go with her to the Great Bloom to investigate what has happened to her ships. And he says they're not going to follow her in, but they'll keep stationed just outside the event horizon of the anomaly. Uh, but when they get there, all of a the sudden their scans or something triggers something and all these energy tendrils come out and everyone blacks out and they wake up and they're not where they're supposed to be anymore. And then continue <laughs> in the next book. Exactly. So yeah, we've got a cliffhanger here and they figure out they're in the small Magellanic cloud, which is kind of a, a peripheral mini galaxy to the Milky Way galaxy, uh, which if you're familiar with Star Trek novels and have read a lot of other Star Trek novels, you might have an idea of where they are and who they might run into. But uh, I'll, I'll leave it there because that's not in this book. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Yep. You have to wait till the next book, which we will be reviewing in a few episodes from now, but yeah, the whole great bloom thing. I, I also enjoy that because, you know, Shinzon's ship is such a powerful ship and it, it's got all that weird technology on it. You could tell I'm not a technical person when it comes to this, but the fact that it <laughs> explodes and it's just, okay. It's not just like, Oh, it explodes and it's gone. It creates this rift. It creates this, this cloud in space, this mysterious thing, because there's just something that, you know, within that ship that just charged and, and, and became something else in this great bloom. And, and they're using this to hide in. And like you said, they're looking, the Titans looking at that as a memorial to data. It just, it takes nemesis to, again, a whole nother level. It just, it just plays off of those things. And I think that's what this book really does a good job doing. It plays on things that have been established elsewhere and makes it feel not forced as to, hey, I'm taking something from Nemesis and putting in this book. Hey, I'm taking Spock from TO from TOS and putting him in this book. It's like they belong here, but there's a connection and it all makes sense for it to be there. None of it feels forced. And I really mm -hmm. like how that works. I don't feel like everything in a lot of Star Trek novels are forced, but there, yeah, there are times that they do, you know, but uh and this one now. Yeah. And that's, that's something that, you know, Nemesis could really just be like, oh, that's where the last movie left off. So everything here is post Nemesis. But Nemesis wasn't just that. And regardless of your feelings about the movie, it did change a lot. Like Riker left the Enterprise. Riker and Troy got married. Um, there is a big, huge power shift in the Romulan Empire. So, you know, when we talk about the post-Nemesis continuity, it's not just saying this stuff takes place after this movie. All the stuff in that movie kind of has these ripple effects through everything that happens afterwards. And this book, I think, cemented that idea by really not just dismissing those things, but taking them and kind of running with them, which I really liked because it gives them validation. It gives it, you know... Uh, import in the Star Trek universe and everything that happens um, has ripple effects and continues forward, which is very much a departure from what the novels were before this to what they are after this, because, you know, you don't have to just put all the toys back on the shelf as you found them, like previous novel writers would have to do for novels that take place within the series. They can really change things and switch things up and, make their lasting mark on the universe going forward, which I think 
you know, this really marks the entrance into an era of Star Trek novels that is a heck of a lot of fun. That's a very good point because Nemesis, even though it's not widely popular or widely accepted as a good Star Trek movie, it does launch a lot of great things into the Star Trek litverse because we're getting Titan from that movie. We're getting the Enterprise E with some new crew members and it's progressing forward from that movie. We got books that deal with data as a result of that movie. There's just a lot of, and of course what's going on with the Romulans and stuff like that movie really does feel like it's the spark that created a new storyline in the Star Trek lit verse. Absolutely agree. Yeah. Um, and, and I just, I love that it does that and it, it really, it makes this, I, I, I just keep going back to it being a lot of fun because you no longer know where it's going to go and where it's going to end up. Yeah. And I never got that feeling reading Star Trek novels before this period, maybe a little bit of the deep space nine relaunch because they did some new things and introduced some new characters, but it really was, you know, it was, it was the silver lining to the fact that it looked very unlikely we'd get anything in the prime universe uh, set, you know, post nemesis on television or in movies, but the silver lining was, we got these great books. Yeah. So, you know, we'll see how that changes going forward as we get towards the end of this year. And we all know what's coming, which don't get me wrong. I'm very much looking forward to, but you know, the fact that we weren't getting new things in this era meant some really cool stuff for the novels. So I wasn't too sad about that. No, not at all. I mean, if anything, it, for those who are big Star Trek novel readers, in some ways, when a series or a movie series gets canceled, it's a blessing in disguise because then we have a chance to explore something beyond that. And the auth the authors are just released to create their own storylines and universe and make this bigger and more in depth and, and do all kinds of things with it that they can't when a series is still on tv or the movies are still mm -hmm. being made and of course yeah i mean we know what happens to romulus from star trek 09 and so it's interesting to see what's going on with the romulans now and knowing what's going to happen later yeah definitely and seeing that uh, apparently going to play out in the picard series as well and the repercussions from that yes. so that's going to be yet another moment i think like nemesis that just has all these ripple effects going forward that man I'm, I'm really curious to see where they go with that so with that said though um what are your final thoughts about taking wing and uh, maybe a rating so i really like this book i like this book even more so the second time around than i did the first time i enjoyed it the first time but more so now the second time when I saw Star Trek Nemesis for the first time in the theaters on opening weekend, and the theater was not crowded, I'm sorry to say, but uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Made in Manhattan beat it on its opening weekend. I will never be not sad about oh, that fact. Don't even remind me of that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, when I saw it, I remember when they showed Riker and Troy getting married and him being mentioned being captain of the Titan. And my first thought right away was like, oh, ooh, new Star Trek novels about 
Captain Riker. I mean, like, because when I went into movies at that point, you know, I'm a big novel reader and I know that they play off of these movies. So I got all excited just the fact that I already knew we were going to get Titan novels. I just knew we would, you know? And so (laughs) here it was. Here's the first one. And I remember being excited at the time. But now, yeah, my appreciation is different now because I know where these books go and I know who this crew is. So now I'm noticing more of that storyline with the Romulans and with Spock and, and Tuvok. And I really enjoy that storyline to this more so than meeting the new crew, which we get to know more of later, of course. And those stories become even interesting in themselves. So for this one, I'm giving this four and a half rooms that Troy was not invited to oh. out, of, out of five. Oh, that's especially that one half room. Oh, poor Troy. No, <laughs> <laughs> well, the half room is like a powder room. It's not a full like bath or something. Okay. I gotcha. <laughs> yeah, no, I feel very much the same way. Um, I, I remember, like I said, reading this years ago and thinking it was pretty cool, but not liking certain aspects of it, thinking the Romulan stuff was really boring and all that stuff. This time around, and you know, partially it's what we said before, partially it's just knowing what to expect and knowing what it is and, and getting from it some really different, really cool things this time around. I really enjoyed this novel. I loved reading it and, you know, seeing these characters at the beginning of their voyage and just getting the introductions and knowing where they're going to go from here. I, I love this crew. I think this is a really great book series and this was a really interesting way to kick it off. I feel like the the story they wanted to tell was of, you know, this mission of exploration, but there is that line in Nemesis that Titan's going to Romulus. So we've got to kind of play that story. And I remember when I first read it at the time, I was like, oh yeah, they have to tell this story because of that line in Nemesis. We can get that out of the way and then get onto the good stuff. But here I'm really digging it. And I'm thinking that is the good stuff. And I'm really enjoying the politics of all this, knowing how it plays out. So, yeah, I would have to give this one, I'd say, four out of five bloody pieces of meat that Dr. Ree is tearing into in the mess hall. <laughs> and I mean, some people are looking at it going, ooh, but Riker's kind of like wondering, I wonder if he'll save one of those leg bones for me. <laughs> <laughs> Which he actually does think that in the book. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is the thing that happens. <laughs> I have to say that I don't know if I can wait another couple weeks until we read The Red King, because I really want to dive into that right now, especially after this discussion. We've got some other great books coming up in the meantime, so it's going to make the wait easier because I can't wait to dig into those. But just coming off of Taking Wing, I want to go to, to The Red King right, right now. Mm-hmm. And what's really cool about this is the next novel we're reading is Articles of the Federation, which I've never read. So I've heard so much about this novel and I'm so excited. Yes. (laughs) And we uh, might be having an author on there too, maybe, huh? Huh. Well, maybe. We'll have to look into that. I don't know. Who is it that books these things? We need to talk to our agent and get that all sorted out. Yeah, I have I have our agent on speed dial, so I'll, I'll take care of that. Ah, oh, perfect. Well, it's been a lot of fun talking about Romulan power sharing agreements today, but it's not the only thing we've been discussing on the network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. 
Previously on Trek.fm, Literary Treks. Like you said, some of the recent novels have gone with Commander Una, uh, which is, if I'm remembering correctly, they explain a name she's kind of adopted because she got tired of people just calling her number one or something like that. But it's still referring to this backstory of her being the best of the best, being perfect from Illyria, which is a planet that embraces... Uh, genetic manipulation, I think, and, and you know, that sort of thing, and, and breeding for the absolute best, and she was number one in her generation or something like that. Melodic Treks. So, but after I watched Star Trek Voyager, uh, and, you know, I was aware of the existence of the uh, Minimoog Voyager, uh, I mean, it didn't take me long to just like, oh, it would be cool one day, like if I could acquire the, the synth, you know, like the first thing I'd do with it is redo the Star Trek Voyager theme with it. Then wouldn't that be fun? You know, the Star Trek Voyager theme we've performed by the Minimook Voyager, right? <laughs> Warp 5. So I'm going to go to Sleeping Dogs for my next, next episode here. Now... At this point in Star Trek, I'm really tired of the Klingons, and I was on my original watch of Enterprise, and I still am. I'm really, really tired of the Klingons, so... Did I say the right episode? Sleeping Dogs, I said, right? Yes. You're just looking at me funny here. I'm like, did I say Shadows of Pajama? <laughs> no, 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 you said Sleeping Dogs. <laughs> okay, good. So... The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. She is with a fake him, and she even says, well, it's you, but it's really only my memory of you. Right. Like, that line is heartbreaking. Yeah. I'm not the sappiest person on the planet by any stretch of the imagination. Anyone who has heard me talk for months on this network knows that. But this is heartbreaking stuff. Yeah. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published, and please leave us a star rating and written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, YouTube, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. If you'd like to help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Just visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all of the details. Perks can include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons' website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in on the larger conversation is in the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks, and that will come right to us. And you can also find the network on Twitter at Trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Trek.fm. 
You can also find us on Goodreads. We have a group on there where we have bookshelves with all of our previously covered books, as well as a currently reading section so you know what's coming up for future shows. Plus, we have message boards where there are great conversations happening about all of the books and comics. Just search for Literary Treks on Goodreads and click Join Group. We'd like to thank Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Shea Justin Ozer, and Jeffrey Harlan for their support of the Trek FM network and for being associate producers for Literary Treks as well. Now, Bruce, when you're not negotiating the Remans becoming a protectorate under your protection, where can we find you? Well, you can find me with the Klingons because I'm trying to help them with the Remans and try to take on the Romulans and uh, all that other stuff. But anyway, you can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. You can find me here on the network doing Live from the Edge with Brandy Jackala. And that is on Friday nights live on YouTube at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific the night after a Discovery episode premieres. And you can find me doing Star Wars on the Star Wars Report podcast. And yes, I will be at Star Wars Celebration. We'll be doing things on Facebook Live. We'll be doing some special podcast episodes that will be released during Celebration. And so that is April 11th through the 15th, I think. So I don't know if those are exact dates, but yeah, the last part of the week. And uh, of course, you can find me in the Babel Conference. And Dan, when you're not going to sick bay to have a dino to have a dinosaur cut an incision into you, where can people find you? And he's using his claw, by the way. Oh, that I hope that doesn't seem that doesn't seem right. I think I'm gonna be like that ensign that just was really freaked out by that. You know, I try not to be. I try to be, you know, but ooh, that's scary. Uh but yeah, when I'm not worried about that, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. I also have a YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Productions, where I talk about Star Trek, mostly about Discovery lately. But, you know, as we get further into this year, look for some more stuff coming out about the Picard series. Ooh, I can't wait. And uh, you can also find me, of course, on facebook.com slash Productions, And you can also find me in the Babel Conference. Well, thank you all so much for listening, and until next time, live long and read on. What do you call that light reading? To each his own, number one.